You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We have breaking news tonight affecting thousands of West Coast Express commuters. Demonstrators are blocking the Canadian Pacific tracks on the Pitt River Rail Bridge and they've caused a total shutdown of the passenger service eastbound this afternoon. Remina Dea joins us live at Waterfront Station uh, where a lot of people are stranded tonight, Rumina. It's affecting thousands of people, Sophie. It's been about two hours now since the trains have been shut down. All eastbound West Coast Express trains heading from Waterfront in downtown Vancouver have been cancelled. You can see up there it says that the next train's departing in about 18 minutes. That's a false alarm. All trains, as I said, have been cancelled. Thousands of passengers, as I said, affected. We're talking about 10,000 trips a day. 5,000 passengers that use this service every day. Now, this is a result of a handful of protesters that are blocking the CP rail tracks on the Pitt River Rail Bridge, as you mentioned. Commuters are telling us that they are simply fed up. People have been dealing with traffic disruptions since last week in Vancouver. They're wondering when the government is going to do something about it. And there's one bus that runs at 7 o'clock. It's 4 o'clock now, so we'll be waiting in the rain at Haney Place for over two or three hours. I understand that the train is also a public service. We pay a lot of money for it and uh, I have two little children to get to mission to by six o'clock and no one else on the other end to get them. And I know if there was someone called to standing in front of a public transit bus, I think that person would be removed before too long. There's other ways yeah. and other places you can protest rather than affecting everyone from apparently here to Newfoundland is what I've heard. Yeah. So. It's no way to get people to join your cause. No. Now, of course, it's unclear when service is going to resume. The last train is out of here, I think, at around 6.20. So as far as tomorrow morning is concerned, it's still a crapshoot. It's all going to depend on whether the protesters are going to stay there, whether they're going to move. We have no idea. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that, Ramina. The Kit Solano Constituency Office of B.C. Attorney General David Eby was also the focus of protesters today. That's where our Jordan Armstrong is tonight. And Jordan, that crowd said that they would stay until their concerns were addressed. Well, we know the protest wrapped up just a short time ago. Chris, the activists ended their office occupation a couple of hours ago, around 4 p.m. While they were inside, their mood was very upbeat. The same cannot be said for EB's office assistant, who left here looking quite distraught. Imagine a flood of activists bursting into your office first thing in the morning. Eby's assistant felt so overwhelmed, so intimidated, that she locked herself in a washroom until Vancouver police arrived. There's a lady here in the back who works here. She's extremely frightened right now. We need to send her a lot of love and tell her that we're not here to harm her. But Eby's assistant, who did not want to appear on camera, took all the heat because the Attorney General has been in Victoria all week. She told us that she did not want us to come into the space uninvited. We said we are Indigenous people who have lived on this land for a very long time with uninvited settlers on our land, so it's a little bit ironic. We, uh, at my office, try to go above and beyond to accommodate 
uh, protesters, but the line for me is the safety of my staff. His staff's workspace taken over by protesters, demanding the RCMP leave Wet'suwet'en territory and the Horgan government kill the coastal gas link pipeline. Why would he do that, though? Because a majority of people are in support of the project. I disagree. I don't think that a majority of people are in support of the project. Not all of the activists invaded the office. Some stood on the sidewalk with a banner and felt our camera was invasive. They're not protests, we're uh, land defenders. Okay. And I think the way you're using a camera is very invasive. Invasive, okay. Yes. What about what you're doing here? Is this not invasive? We are in public space. So are we. Mm -hmm. But the way you're using a camera is uh, very invasive. Stand up no, my I didn't. Back. I live here. Stand I live up here. My back. I live Stand here and I'm sick of seeing what's going on. At 3 p.m., tempers flared when demonstrators were confronted by a local resident. What you're doing, you're supporting this. At 4 p.m., the activists decided to end their day-long sit-in and move along. Now, in the end, no one was arrested here, but you, as you saw in the story, there was a rather large VPD presence all day long, certainly more than a dozen officers at all times. I'm told most, if not all, of those officers were here on overtime. We asked Vancouver Police if they have any numbers yet for how much these protests all week have cost taxpayers. So far, no figures available. Chris? All right. Jordan Armstrong reporting in Vancouver. Thank you. All right, now let's head to Victoria and Keith Baldry with more on this story. Keith, you have breaking news about an injunction that's been granted mm -hmm. uh, which should stop future blockades at the legislature. Well, theoretically, it's going to stop future blockades. This is the injunction, four pages, just released late this afternoon, granted by B.C. Supreme Court judge on a bid brought by B.C. Speaker Daryl Plekis. It's a very sweeping injunction. It's designed to prevent a replay of those events on Tuesday when people not only protested but blocked the entrances to the legislature. So here's how this injunction breaks down in terms of what it covers. First of all, it covers pretty well everything in terms of entrances and exits. So it covers all doorways and driveways. It covers all buildings on the legislature grounds, including the building I'm in, which is called the Armory Building, just tucked behind the main building. And uh, in an unusual move, the police are given immediate enforcement powers in this injunction. It means they don't have to go back to court to get an enforcement order. But it also notes that protests are still allowed. You just can't block the doors. That's a point Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth made when I caught up with him this afternoon. It is a sweeping injunction. The uh, judge uh, clearly recognized that uh, legitimate protest uh, can take place, uh, you know, on the lawns of the legislature, for example, uh, but you cannot block uh, the entranceways into the building. You cannot block the, uh, the driveways, the access points into the uh, legislative grounds. You cannot block uh, the legislative precinct, uh, that uh, people have a right to go to work uh, free of intimidation, free of harassment, uh, and not be blocked from entering. Uh, but, you know, lawful protests can take place on the grounds. Now, tomorrow, uh, the second phase of protests over here is supposed to occur. That means uh, protesters are targeting about 20 government buildings, different ministry buildings, uh, largely in the downtown core, uh, to blockade them uh, and shut them down between 8 a.m. and noon. We don't know how many are actually going to succeed there. Uh, and who knows, this injunction may uh, sort of be force people or, or attract people to come back to the legislature and protest again, even though they'll be risking potential arrest. And finally, don't look for a replay of what happened at David Eby's office tomorrow because my understanding is most, if not all, uh, NDP constituency offices are likely to be closed. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry in Victoria.
And a new public opinion poll shows British Columbians are essentially split right down the middle in how they perceive the protests this dispute has spawned. Angus Reid found that an almost equal number of people support the protesters as are opposed to them. Aaron MacArthur has the numbers and why BC's established protest culture might be affecting public opinion. Wandering protests through downtown Vancouver. People trapped in their cars, bridges cut off, highways barricaded. Inconvenient enough to spark some people taking matters into their own hands. The level of anger directed at the protesters is being tracked. The numbers, a bit surprising. And a lot of people with babies trying to get to hospitals, you know that, right? Angus Reid surveyed people all across the country. In B.C., the results speak to a province deeply divided. In terms of the frustration that we see in Taita Nega territory and we see in other neighboring Indigenous communities, even Calgary, I think that is a frustration where people in some ways, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, feel sick at heart about what's happening. Among those surveyed, 46% of British Columbians support what the protesters are trying to accomplish. 49% opposed. If you live in northern BC, you're watching what's happening in downtown Vancouver or at the legislature in Victoria going, what the heck? If you are someone who lives in Esquimalt or Saanich or Burnaby uh, or, or downtown Vancouver, you may be much more likely to say, yes, these are important issues. BC has a long history of civil disobedience. The rescue. During the 80s on Haida Gwaii. We all stay on the road. They can't arrest us all. The 90s bringing major clashes between environmentalists and loggers, known as the War in the Woods. Organizers of some of those watershed moments in BC history say the current situation holds a great deal of similarity. It's a societal readiness for a scale of change. The protests around Coastal Gaslink will end eventually, but if there's no resolution, another issue will pop up, and next time people will be angrier more likely to join the cause. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And a Global News exclusive now. We've learned that ICBC has set the wheels in motion on another measure that could save you money and time on your auto insurance, online renewals. But as Richard Zussman reports, there's a lot to be worked out before you can re-up your car coverage from home. They have online car insurance renewals in Ontario, in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, and now the BC government is getting ready to bring it here too. We are doing on online renewals and there will be some savings there. A task force started this week, including ICBC and the Brokers Association, is now looking at online renewals. The plan is to report back to the government in the next few months and have legislation, if needed, ready for the fall. The criteria we're looking at is what makes a, a simple transaction, a simple renewal, something that the consumer can do readily from their home, on their phone, on their laptop? Last fiscal year, brokers were paid $490 million in commissions. But no one knows how much going online could actually save individuals or how much it could save the public insurer by modernizing the renewal process. For ICBC to install the kind of infrastructure that's in place currently with brokers' offices would cost hundreds of millions of dollars and we're just not going to do that. So we'll be working with brokers into the future. It's also unclear how many people want to renew online. When Saskatchewan went online, less than 2% of policies were renewed that way in the first year, slowly climbing up to 14% this year. 
The task force also still needs to figure out whether online would cover both basic and optional insurance. If ICBC or the brokers themselves would run the online renewals or how customers would get the stickers that go on your license plate. If we're going to have online renewals, you have to put British Columbians in the centre of it. It's what's best for them, not what's best for ICBC or brokers. About 50% of all transactions at brokerages are renewals. The Insurance Bureau of Canada says that the private companies that they advocate for have been doing renewals online for a long time. And ultimately, ICBC just needs to catch up. The fact that you cannot renew online in BC is just another failure of ICBC's monopoly. As for when all this could be in place, when asked if 2021 was possible, all EB would say is legislation could be on the way as soon as the fall. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The U.S. Justice Department is turning up the heat again on Chinese tech giant Huawei and its CFO, who remains under house arrest in Vancouver. Meng Wanzhou and Huawei are now facing 16 serious new charges for racketeering and conspiracy over the theft of technology from U.S. companies. Paul Johnson has the details. If you thought the case against Meng Wanzhou and Huawei was complicated... Have a look at the new charges revealed Thursday by prosecutors in New York City. A 56-page indictment accusing the Chinese tech giant of racketeering and fraud. Claims that Huawei used academics working at research labs in the U.S. to try and steal trade secrets. Even one case where they say a Huawei employee was caught sneaking into a trade show in the middle of the night to take pictures of a competitor's equipment. I think it's going to be of consequence to Huawei, but it won't necessarily be of consequence to Madame Meng. Coquitlam lawyer Gary Botting points out while there's new charges against Huawei, the indictment appears only to repeat the original charges against Meng personally. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So if none of this is going to be considered in Meng's current extradition case, why bother with these new charges in the first place? Lawyers have their own theories. It's political public relations again in this extradition case. Vancouver lawyer Richard Curland says the Americans may expect they're going to lose the extradition case. One hint, he says, is the headline-grabbing RICO or racketeering charges typically used in mafia cases. Huawei on Thursday said the racketeering charge is just another attempt to damage their reputation. Curlin says this is more about the court of public opinion than the court of law. If the RICO charges are uh, laid against Ms. Meng, it's a political face saver for Washington in the event Canada disposes of the extradition case uh, by releasing Ms. Meng from custody and allowing her on an airplane to China. Paul Johnson, Global News. The integrated homicide investigation team has now taken over a fatal shooting in a crowded mall parking lot in Langley last Friday night. The victim targeted in front of his two children. Catherine Urquhart is live with the latest from investigators, and we should let people know, Catherine, some of the details in this case are disturbing. Yes, Chris, incredibly disturbing. The victim and his two young children had just been celebrating inside the Chuck E. Cheese's restaurant here behind me in Langley. The shooting happened as the three of them were sitting inside a parked pickup truck. The when the shooting occurred, uh, Mr. Sandu had uh, two of his children in the vehicle. Unfortunately, they weren't hurt. 
Um, but uh, as we can all imagine, uh, the trauma of what they witnessed that night. So we are, uh, we have our victim services um, support in place, and we're, we've offered that to the family. Uh, our condolences go out to the Sandu uh, family uh, for the loss of their husband, their father, their son. And uh, we're working hard to find out what exactly happened, who's responsible. Um, and of course, we believe there's people with information, and we need those people to come forward. Now, police have identified the victim as 42-year-old Ravinder Singh Sandhu. He was a Surrey resident and he was known to police. This was most definitely a targeted attack. Now, no arrests have been made in the case. Police are asking anyone with dash cam video to come forward. The shooting happened at about 9.30 p.m. last Friday in the area of 200th Street and 64th Avenue here in Langley. Chris, back Hard to, to imagine what those kids saw. All right, thanks very much, Catherine. Until then, it was definitely one for the books for Coquitlam RCMP after pulling over a student driver for running a stop sign the officer suspected an even worse infraction. The student, a 44-year-old man, failed a sobriety test and had his learner's license suspended for 90 days. And as for the instructor in the passenger seat, he's had his car impounded for 30 days. There was a driving instructor right beside the person who was allegedly impaired. Now remember, our officer picked up signs and symptoms within a minute. So it's one of those things where it's incumbent upon an instructor. They must know the condition of the student beside them. And if they're not able to drive, that lesson shouldn't be happening. More shocking allegations tonight of abuse in B.C.'s foster care system outlined in a civil suit that blames the Ministry of Children and Family Development. An Okanagan woman who was raised in the system says not only were her pleas for help ignored, her social worker allegedly stole money intended to help her survive as a teenager. Global's Jules Knox reports. A young woman taken from her mother when she was just three years old says that she was put in a home with abusive foster parents more than once. In a civil case, she blames the Ministry of Children and Family Development. The province just recently filing its response, saying that it's not vicariously liable for the actions of foster parents. In court documents, the woman details a horrendous childhood including one instance where, as a teenager, she reported problems with a foster family but was only removed from the home after her foster father overdosed on injected opioids in a child's bedroom. The lawsuit also says her social worker, Robert Riley Saunders, opened a joint bank account with the girl and allegedly stole the money meant for her food, clothing and shelter. And she wasn't the only youth he allegedly did this to, the woman's lawyer, Jason Grattle, says he's personally representing more than a dozen cases against Saunders. He says the province is now deep in negotiations with a representative plaintiff in a proposed class action. Yeah, the facts came out slowly. I've been outraged from the first moment. The notion that a social worker would steal rent checks from children in care, making them homeless, is, is abhorrent. Court documents in this case say the girl then had a child but Saunders took her baby away, saying that she was homeless and lacked the resources to care for her child. Meanwhile, he allegedly closed their joint account in January 2018, taking her money for himself. The, the question to my mind is, uh, where are the criminal charges? Why is this man not being prosecuted? 
RCMP did not respond to a request for comment. As for where Saunders is, Gradle says it appears he's gone underground and his whereabouts are not currently known. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Well, it was supposed to be one of the great secrets of the 2010 Olympic Games. But with so much interest and hype, Global BC managed to track down the choice for the Olympic emblem before the big reveal. Global's Ted Chernecki has more on the controversy and how the leak went down internally with the Olympic Organizing Committee. So uh, we, we, can't, we can't get in at all, eh? No. And that's the road to the 2010 Games was a bumpy one, fraught with twists and turns and secrets. Lots of secrets. Our competitor had the broadcast rights for these games and we're the number one station in this market. Our managing editor at the time was adamant that we had to be in front of a lot of these stories and one of them was the unveiling of this logo. And there was a big buzz around Vancouver just before the Olympics about what the logo was going to be. So I had to find out before CTV and the Olympic people announced it. So we, I, I set a whole station to try and find it. We're here to reveal that the official 2010 Olympic logo for the Vancouver Whistler Games will be based on a stylized Inukchuk. The real problem was our story came 24 hours before the planned nationally televised big reveal. It was just a, a very small dent in, in, um, in, in the world, and, and I wanted to win that. Well, that is not how Van Ock saw it, in particular John Furlong. He was livid. He called the newsroom. There was a conference call accusing us of torpedoing the games. But in the end, uh, we argued back that it was simply a good old-fashioned scoop. Oh, we think you got the story right as far as it wasn't a nookshook, but really didn't think it was properly portrayed. And uh, we felt you were telling the audience that this is the logo when, in fact, it was quite different from what we actually revealed. Okay, well, he's got a point there. This is the logo we put to air that day. We had some of the colors wrong, but I mean, it does look like an Anukchuk still. Uh, you know, it was disappointment. It wasn't a big deal. I think by the next day, it was we were moving on to the next thing. But almost five years later, Furlong tried to get me off a military flight that was going to Greece to pick up the Olympic flame. And he called the newsroom here and said, we don't want Trenecki on that flight. And to his credit, the news director at the time, Ian Hasem, said, it's Trenecki or nobody. And we went. But do you think he's ever forgiven you for it? Uh, probably not. I think he associates you more with the story because <laughs> you fronted it. Now, a decade later, Furlong has only been helpful in our stories looking back at the way we were. Ted Trenecki, Global News. They still talk about that in our newsroom. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been talking this week about the legacies of the 2010 Games in our one-on-one -on -one look back with Vancouver Organizing Committee CEO John Furlong. Interestingly, the Inukshuk never came up. Well, tonight, though, <laughs> Furlong defends the for dollars spent back in 2010, pointing out that Russia spent 20 times more than Vancouver only four years later. You know, I've often said if you take... The Vancouver Games, which cost 2.5, uh, the Van Ock budget was 2.5 billion in total. And you take Sochi, which is 51 billion, and you take three minutes of video from both of these events and put them up together and play them, you'll be hard pressed to know which one costs 51 billion dollars. Makes a good point there. Well, you can see much more of our interview with John Furlong and his memories of the 2010 Games on our website globalnews.ca slash bc. And a reminder, we want you to share your memories and photos of the 2010 games with us. You can do so by posting them on social media. Just use the hashtag lookback2010 and tag at globalbc2 and we'll be showing them on our various broadcasts <laughs> like these. So many good memories. Mm -hmm.
Mexico's Popocatapetl volcano has erupted once again in spectacular fashion. Lava flew from its crater and an ash column rose about 1,500 meters into the sky. The volcano, 70 kilometers southeast of Mexico City, is the fifth highest in North America. El Popo, as it is nicknamed, is one of Mexico's most active volcanoes. There is some good news tonight for some of the people quarantined on that cruise ship near Tokyo because of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Passengers over the age of 80 who've tested negative will be allowed to disembark and finish their isolation on land. 44 more people on the ship have been diagnosed with the virus, bringing the number to 218. At least 12 Canadians on the ship have tested positive. Meantime, there has been a major spike in cases within China. The total number of cases is now more than 60,000, with more than 1,300 deaths. But officials say much of that increase is due to changes in the way China is testing for the virus. Now, while the number of coronavirus cases outside of China is still relatively low, that hasn't stopped fear from growing. A UBC professor who wrote the book on the psychology of pandemics says how we react to an outbreak can have as much of an impact as the illness itself. And as Linda Aylesworth reports, it can start with something as simple as a name. The novel coronavirus recently got a new name, COVID-19. Co for corona, VI for virus, D for disease. The name itself is simple, but the thought behind it was not. We had to find a name that did not refer to a geographical location, an animal, an, an individual or group of people. The reason... If you name it after animals or regions or groups of people, that can have um, major uh, fallout. We call this Chinese flu, which is a really dumb idea because it's going to foster xenophobia. In other words, racism. It's just part of the psychology of pandemics, the title of a book written by UBC professor Stephen Taylor. So when people get threatened with infection, and this has happened in every single pandemic and epidemic, people look for someone to blame. The psychological aspects have long been overlooked, but they play a vital role in every aspect of managing pandemics. Take, for example, people who are overly fearful of becoming infected. What can happen is there can be an influx of people into the hospitals, overwhelming the healthcare system of people who are the, quote, worried well. And conversely, there are those who feel they are impervious and as a result are at high risk of spreading the disease. So they're the people who won't get vaccinated if a vaccine would have become available. And they're the people who go out and socialize when, when they're sick. COVID-19 has not been declared a pandemic because it's mostly contained to China. But it emphasizes, nonetheless, the important role we all play in containing infectious outbreaks. Managing rumors is a, a vital issue uh, in, in helping the public not only learn what to do, but to quell unnecessary anxiety. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. It's been a proud day for Global BC, contributing to a strong future for journalism in our country. Global News Director and Station Manager Jill Kropp was at BCIT today to hand over a check for more than $32,000. It'll help the broadcast school keep up with changes in technology. I think journalists are the people who can march that line and uphold the truth. It's very, very important that we collectively continue to do that, not only for society, but certainly for democracy. Today's donation is in addition to ongoing fellowships, bursaries, 
and internships provided to BCIT journalism students by Global. Caught on camera, grassroots crime fighting. A police officer chases a shoplifter outside a Georgia Walmart. The perfectly timed customer's actions that took him down right after the forecast. All right, right now we'll check in with Christy for a look at that. Still pretty mild out there, and that's a mm-hmm. beautiful shot behind you. Yes, it was nice to finish off the day with some breaks of blue sky. And I have some sunshine in store for uh, your long weekend as well as your Valentine's. First, though, I just want to show you some numbers that have come in from NASA and NOAA showing the 10 hottest years on record. This is based on global average temperatures. And the key here that I want to point out is 2019, everyone, the second hottest year on record. But also worth noting is that the last five years were the five hottest years on record. So we're continuing on this trend, certainly, and it means very costly disasters. This is based on data out of the U.S. Weather and climate events have skyrocketed. More than $100 billion disasters occurred in the 2010, and that more tens, and it more than doubles what they had in the 1990s. And yes, that trend, as I said, is going to continue. Now, meanwhile, your Valentine's Day, everyone, we are going to wake up to some blue sky, but it won't last long. So if If you have Valentine's plans in the evening, make sure you bring an umbrella. Maybe give yourself a little bit of extra time. We'll see widespread rainfall across the south coast, and it means snowfall for the mountain passes. So if you're traveling later tomorrow, certainly expect that snowfall into your Saturday morning. The latter half of your long weekend, though, is certainly looking much better. Here's a look at northern sections. Wet across coastal regions, inland regions, a few flurries, and that extends down into the Columbia area, whereas you'll see lots of blue sky and through the Okanagan Valley tomorrow, but not on Saturday. Expect a bit of snowfall on Saturday for your region. So sunshine in the morning, increasing cloud in the afternoon, rainfall developing tomorrow evening for Valentine's Day, and the first bit of our long weekend certainly looks soggy, but the last half looks pretty nice. And I'll leave you with a shot. This is from the backyard, Bob's backyard in Parsons, and he has a gravity-fed irrigation system, and in the wintertime, they have to release some of the pressure, and he points the nozzle upwards and creates this beautiful ice castle. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I love that. Thanks, Christy. Caught on video, a Walmart customer in Georgia uses his shopping cart for crime fighting. You in a route, step it up. Be a whip out one in Walmart. A police officer's body camera captures the chase of a suspected shoplifter who appears to be getting away, but then security cameras catch a customer watching what's happening, and he takes action. A perfectly timed push of the cart takes down the fleeing thief. That suspect is now facing several charges. And police, they help him put all his stuff back in the shopping cart, gave him a pat on the back for his efforts. And do you think Walmart then reimbursed him the money for all that stuff or you know, gave him a shopping spree or something? That would be nice. Gift card? Mm. Right? Yeah, did you, did you watch it? Did you, yes, did you watch yeah, it last night? So it'd be actually yes. good. Well, he, yeah, he was entertaining. Yeah, that was the only... As he always is. The only bad part about that whole thing was the people on the ice couldn't really right. hear what was being said. That was uh, the only thing. They seemed to laugh at the right times, though. They did. Well, well, Luongo, like, realized, oh, I should start laughing right now, even though I can't hear what's being said about me. Uh, it did seem appropriate that after the Canucks honored the Sedins, a fellow Swede would then finish off a perfect evening by shutting out Chicago. Jacob Markstrom was the reason the Canucks won this game, and it's been like that more than a few times this season, and every time he has a game like this, and he's had a few, as we just told you, 
the price of his new contract keeps going up. Markstrom is a free agent this summer, unless he is signed by the Canucks before then. This, when you think about it, is Markstrom's last chance probably in his career to get a big contract with a lot of years attached. So the Canucks have been negotiating with his agent all season, but nobody is saying how the negotiations are going. In the meantime, he is making sure the Canucks' playoff dreams are real. Penalty's over. McEwen stepping into the box. His key plus fly. Rebound. Dog trying to shovel it in. And Markstrom doing a snow angel made the save. Nobody was ever going to upstage the Sedins on their Jersey retirement night. Jacob Markstrom made sure the Blackhawks didn't spoil the party. Markstrom set a Canucks record for most saves in a shutout with 49. The second time he's made 40-plus saves in a shutout win this season. I didn't know that, but records don't come easy in this organization or in this league. So, you know, I'll take it and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, somebody will beat it, beat it soon if it's me or them or the, you know, you always want to want to play as good as possible and help the team win. Uh, definitely would not have been a 3 nothing win or a win at all. It wasn't for him. Uh, can't really say enough about how he played tonight. That was pretty special. Um, I don't think we had our, our best game. And uh, um, sometimes you got to find ways to win those. And, and uh, when you have your goaltending, it's, uh, it's kind of your last hope. And, um, he hung us in that one, so we need to uh, tighten up a little bit. But it was Cuckoo who picked it up himself, so no whistle. He's in with a shot. Markstrom has faced the second most shots in the NHL this year, and with every stop, his price tag goes up. Markstrom, of course, is a free agent at the end of the season and may be looking to double his current contract. Right now, he's the 27th highest paid goalie in the league at $3.66 million per season. Even with a hometown discount, the Canucks will be hard-pressed to keep that number around $6 million per year. But right now, Markstrom may be the best goalie in the NHL. That may get the Canucks into the playoffs, but as of now, there's no guarantee Jacob Markstrom will be a Canuck beyond this season. Barry DeLay, Global Sports. Now let's say and give props to the Canucks organization because they did do a great job with the show around the Sedin's number retirement ceremony. And they showed us, Daniel and Henrik, what kind of guys they are again by thanking even members of the front office staff by name. You rarely hear that in any retirement ceremony. Uh, they, of course, got the biggest cheers, but if you use the old applause meter, you'll see that Ryan Kessler, who was getting booed after he got traded to Anaheim, and, of course, Trevor Linden, got big ovations as well. Steen, Trevor Linden. Kessler. Got lots, Lou got lots of lose. I but I did. think Kessler was most surprised. I think he was like, mm -hmm. oh, they're going to boo me again. Oh, they love me again. And like this it, is yeah. great. You know, <laughs> so he enjoyed himself. Uh, Michael Furlan is ready to play again. He hasn't played since, I think, December 10th because of concussion issues. He will play two games with the farm team in Utica on Friday and Sunday, and then if all goes well, he'll rejoin the Canucks next week. Okay, Andre Vasilevsky, that hurts mm -hmm. just looking at it. For me, it hurts just looking at it. Oilers and Lightning, a lot of stars missing in this game. Kucherov, McDavid, but Yanni Gord scores for Tampa Bay, and that's good news for the Canucks. That was a shorthanded goal, 3-1 the final for Tampa Bay over the Oilers. Vancouver's Vasek, Pospisil, 
in the Netherlands, uh, taking on Serbia's Filip Krajinovic. Pospisil had some cramping issues facing match point, but hits an incredible return to stay alive. Otherwise, he loses the point. Trying that cheeky stuff, are you and our boy? I don't think so. Still hobbling rather badly. But we've also seen had to take a medical timeout. Got more treatment on his legs. Then in the second set, it went to tiebreak. He actually had two set points, but couldn't convert either. Uh, Krajinovic on the fourth match point beats Pospisil, so he is out in Rotterdam. But Felix Oje Aliassime is still left, and he'll play the quarterfinals tomorrow. There is Tiger Woods, the host at the uh, Genesis Open from Riviera in Los Angeles. On the very first hole, he sinks this long eagle putt. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. The eagle putt was 24 feet, 8 inches, 24 and 8, the two numbers worn by Kobe Bryant, who, of course, was a friend of Tiger Woods. Uh, Tiger approached on number 5 to 2 feet, led to a birdie, but he has struggled in the back nine. Two under 69. Matt Kuchar's the leader at seven under. Adam Hadwin on the 10th converts this. Was even par 71. Nick Taylor coming off that win at Pebble Beach, also even par 71. Here's your snow report for this evening. As advertised, lots of new snow across the South Coast Mountains. Whistler Blackcomb picked up 9 centimetres of new snow. Grouse and Cypress 10, Sasquatch 1. Manning Park 3 centimetres, Revelstoke 8. Fernie nothing new, Kicking Horse 1. The Interior Mountains, not a lot of new snow, but they will get some over the weekend, especially Saturday. And Mount Washington picked up 1 centimetre. Powder King is the winner today at 22. Coming up on ET Canada, Modern Family says goodbye and Outlander says hello to season five. Plus laughter and tears as Jan Arden responds to getting into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. That's coming up at seven right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right, thanks, Carlos. Valentine's Day is one of those occasions where a lot of people like to go the extra mile to make a real impression on their love. For a city in Colorado, that means an annual deluge of Valentine's Day cards handled by or handled with care by a very small army of Cupid's helpers. It's hard to imagine a better destination, a postal truck filled with valentines, than a land known for love. Call you sweetheart. This is Loveland, Colorado. Oh, here we go. Each year, thousands choose to send their valentine cards so volunteers can hand stamp them with a loving message. We're stamping. Before sending them on to their final destinations. It's like a room full of grandparents on steroids. About 50 volunteers gather each February to stamp more than 100,000 valentines. I love being Cupid for two weeks. Hit it over here. Joan Williams started stamping 28 years ago. Something she first dreamed of doing when she was 12. That's because I thought it was such a thing being loved. A few of the cards are en route to retired Marine Bill White, who at the age of 104 asked people to send him valentines. The response? More than 100,000 have arrived. This is something that happens to one person probably only once in his life. While most sent their love letters directly to Bill, a few wanted their cards to get a stamp from Loveland, a place proudly serving as a pit stop on the road of love. Joe Fryer, NBC News. Very sweet. I was born on Valentine's Day. You were? But not here. Valentine's Day in Brazil. You confused us for so Yeah. Yeah, for a date. In Brazil. It's June 12th in Brazil. No way. 
Well, oh, now we know when Scar's birthday is. That's yeah. right. Somebody hey. put She's it in a Gemini, calendar. baby. Just like me. <laughs> Don't out. buy gifts. Someone's going to get your banking information now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Last word on weather before we go. Sure. So starting off the day with sunshine tomorrow, but the evening is expected to be wet. And Saturday also, but sunshine after that, everyone. Oh, beautiful shot there. Hi to seven, Alex, my nephews who are watching. Good night. <laughs>